Love you, Marco. Uh, more impressions, please. <laughs> I like your stuff. It's much more spicy and interesting. Where the hell did that come from? Oh, I love you, Marco. Oh, my God. You're a great interviewer, a great conversationalist. I just never forgot you. <laughs> <laughs> Babel Bullshit and Beyond is a new podcast hosted by me, Marco Kiris, conversing about my cage wage whirlwind ways and my perspective of the film biz during those days. A fun, fluff-filled funk with guests relating to all things film biz. Today on the show, we've got Mary Beth Derry, a four-time Grammy nominee and two-time Emmy Award-winning songwriter who's written lyrics spanning several platforms, including television, film, theater, pop, country, and gospel. We caught up with her via Skype from her home in Pasadena, California. So on today's show, we have Mary Beth Derry, a lyricist specializing in several genres, including country, pop, gospel, theater, film, and television. Hi, Marco. How are you? Good, good. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be with you and talk with you. Good, me too. And I get to see your 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 little put em face. My morning face. Yeah, it's a good morning face. <laughs> it's, a, it's a glowing morning face. It's good. It's better than GMA. <laughs> <laughs> it's nice. What it's happy. Uh, good morning, America. Oh, okay. Yeah. Good. You're right. Our show's <laughs> going to be better than that. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. So, Mary Beth, so you're a lyricist. And right. uh, I've known that for a long time, but there are people who don't know. And you specialized in several genres in songwriting. Um, that's pretty big. I want to ask you how do you cross over over the years? from country to pop to gospel to theater? Was it a gradual process or did you always have these uh, these instincts on, on, on writing lyrics uh, for different genres? Well, when I was a kid, Marco, I went to college and majored in theater arts. Mm-hmm. And, and so I always had a love, uh, growing up I took piano lessons, a, a girl in a small town, I sat at the piano by the hour. And of course, what do piano teachers give you but Broadway show tunes? Mm-hmm. And I played all the things from the Fantastics and Brigadoon, all the stuff. And I, it was in my blood, sort of. Then I went off to college where I got formal, you know, formal training. And, but I was a singer. And oh. I would star in musical shows in college and stuff. You know, I'd have the lead in plays and things. So then when I started pop writing, it just became natural, you know. I was that girl who had the guitar at the party and sat and sang songs. And then I started writing my own songs. And then uh, pop music came easy because uh, I think that that genre was just a little more natural for a girl in your 20s. You're going to write about your romances and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. But then I met uh, when I met my husband, uh, Bo Vogels, and my late husband was a music publisher, mm-hmm. as you know, Criterion Music. He's uh, iconic copyrights this company held. Yes. But he first exposed me to Nashville. So uh, I went down there and found that it wasn't quite a stre- as big a stretch. I mean, those country writers are are gifted at storytelling. Mm-hmm. They're they're really gifted at the turn of the phrase. They're very clever. Yeah. You know, they they come up with things. I never forgot that title. I I don't know if I'm saying this right. It might not have been George Strait, but it was about someone dying and they and the title was You Never Know Lonely Till It's Written in Stone. And, and I thought, who could think of that? I mean, there's all kinds of, of just wonderful, clever storytelling in country music. And I got hooked on that. I never really uh, 
was an authentic country writer. Mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't say, but I took my skills and I, I managed to, to quickly, you know, sort of uh, figure out how to write those kind of songs. And then I, I had success with them. But then when I came to theater to finish answering your question, that was just a sort of more elevated return to what I had always loved to do. So mm. that was sort of the full circle. Wow, that's a real quick full circle. And that's, yeah. that's like 40 years of a quick circle. Well, you know, more. I write songs fast, you know, and people will say to me, I had a job working last year at the Wynn Hotel in Vegas, and mm-hmm. the director is saying to me, you know, don't turn in these songs so fast because it seems like you're not really working, you know. <laughs> and he said, how can you write a song in two days? And I said, two days and the 30 years before. Because yeah. really... That, you know, that's how it is in any profession, I think. Um, you have two shows, or you did two shows there. One was uh, Le Rêve, uh, from what mm-hmm. I re- understand, and the other one is Showstoppers, and you worked with uh, Phil McKinley, is that correct, the director? Yes, I, I worked with Phil. I still work with Phil a lot. He's a wonderful, energetic, charismatic director. He He's fun to work with, and he's brilliant. And, uh, no, he brought me on because this Showstoppers was a glitzy, uh, it, it was Steve Wynn's uh, conception of just a whole night of the biggest Broadway show tunes, the best tunes from Hello, Dolly, the best tunes from a chorus line. And then they went out and typical Vegas, they spare no expense. Mm-hmm. I mean, the costumes were all outrageous and the girls were beautiful. And so it was really a great show because it was an hour and a half of the best Broadway show tunes that we all love to hear, you huh. know, Cabaret, Chicago. But what they did in that show in several instances is they got permission to parody the lyric. So, for Um. example, uh, they did the lyric, you're the top, you're the Coliseum. Instead of that, they sang, you're the top, you're the Sky Casino. Look around, girl. You're not in Reno. You know, because it was all about about Vegas, you know. So, So they would do these these parody funny lyrics and I'm the, so they hired me to write those. Oh my God. And nobody more perfect. That's hysterical <laughs> because you run with the humor all the time, Mary Beth. So that's, yeah, I, I was, yeah. was going to ask you, I didn't understand what that show was all about. I mean, I knew it was all about the top, uh, you know, the hollow dollies at cabarets and so forth. I thought, but how are you incorporated in this? And now you just explained it. Now yeah, I, get I did it. it throughout because, and I thought it was brilliant in them to have these moments where they'd remind people they're in Vegas and, and the lyrics would be different than, and mm-hmm. they got permission, you know, Jerry Herman, uh, you know, the thing from Auntie Mame, uh, everything's coming up, roses, kill mm-hmm. the lights, you know, and, and we parodied that. I can't remember those, all those now we parodied you're the top and we got permission. So that was that show. Larev was, was them deciding that they needed to put lyrics to this musical score. Well, he redid the whole show hmm. costumes, everything. I mean, it's, it's a stunning show now. Wow. And again, typical Vegas, they spare no expense to be fabulous. You know, it's not a, and uh, this show is beautiful, but they brought in uh, a composer called Benoit Dutras, who did the shows uh, out of Canada, the Cirque du Soleil shows. Mm-hmm. He was the composer. But, you know, I think Marco and some of those Cirque shows, I don't know if it's true for them all, but on this one, after an hour and a half of what's essentially mime, you're you're telling a story, but you've got in this one gorgeous aerialists and divers, and they're underneath with scuba tanks mm-hmm. waiting for the guy to dive in and put the mask on his face, and just show just the most amazing visuals you've ever seen. 
But what they were trying to do also was tell this love story hmm. of the boy meets girl, the girl goes off with the bad guy, then he gets her back. But that's not always obvious to everyone without words. Mm -hmm. So they decided they would put this score to words so that we do know the story. We do hear the, the, the lovers sing to each other. And we understand, okay, now I get who this guy over here is. And so it worked. And, and that's what I did is that all the words to that score. Oh, my that God. That was really fun. That must have taken, yeah. I'm going to say that, that would have taken a while. I mean, It did. It took, I mean, we worked on it for, you know, a year, I'd say okay. a year. And, you know, you think something's great. And then, and also we worked with choreographer Marguerite Derricks, who's mm -hmm. done so much great work. And uh, she, you know, the words and the music can't throw off the choreography. And especially with these divers, some of these young divers, Marco, were on the Russian Olympic team. Oh, my I God. I mean, you cannot imagine the the gymnastics and the way these and, – and I went up to the top of this theater and looked down into this tiny – it looked like a tiny swimming pool. The mark hmm. they had to hit from the height they were diving was just unbelievable. But, again, wow. getting back to the songs, you, you, you have to have it all flow cause, so that they can get their cues so that nothing's off. You know, mm -hmm. so it took quite a while because it wasn't just words and music. It was words, music, choreography, you know, all everything like that. Hmm. That's so funny how you sum it up so quickly and, and you, you're making me think it would take, you know, the lyrics took a year. I mean, everything else would have taken years and years of practice for these people to put this thing together, especially the choreographer and director. It was not Phil yeah. McKinley for that one. He did Showstoppers. Is that correct? No, Phil did Larev too. He did oh. the remake of it because what was happening is it was originally done. And I, I don't want to say, I, I can't remember exactly who that director was. He wasn't the director. Is it Franco Dracon? Is he the Canadian yes, guy? Yes, 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 yes. It, it was not him, but it was someone under him or something, I think. I, had, I should know, but I don't. I think that but was But they that, decided to, yeah. to change that whole thing. Okay. I think that was the one that was also in Macau out in China. Was that not the yeah, one? That I think was the that one was, in Macau. That was. That's yeah. the one. I was in Macau and I saw it. I stayed You're in a hotel. No, I was there and I, I was like, "Wow, they got the Cirque du Soleil," and it was this whole thing underwater. And then I read this. That thinking, was it, Marco. And I and I read what you had written down. I'm thinking, I'm thinking that is what I saw in Macau. I'm sure of yeah. it. And it was the it was guy who branched out from Cirque du Soleil who produced yeah. it out there. It was phenomenal, and it didn't have lyrics. It no, was an acrobatic no. so show. That's why. Lyrics. Yes. But then what Steve Wynn wanted to do, who, by the way, was a very, very uh, astute and wonderful creator. Mm -hmm. You know, he, he was really artistic and or is artistic. But I mean, in that show, his, his contribution was amazing. And but they wanted the love story because you spectacle is good. And people go to Vegas for spectacle. Mm -hmm. We all want spectacle. But if it's just a long one trick after the next, the next, the next, the next, without a through line to capture the emotion mm -hmm. or to it, it can, I don't know, it, for me, it, it left something missing. Let's just put it this way. If there is a through line of emotion or a love story or something we care about, it only adds to it. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think they did it really successfully with Larev. Wow, that's a great way to put it. Yeah, they did. They pulled it off. So, and th and this director had also done uh, Spider Man in New York years ago, which I had seen 
under his direction while I was in New York. It was brilliant. Well, he took over. Yeah. Yeah. yeah he yeah he took over because you know the whole thing uh, ended up. Uh, Julie Tamor was the original director, mm -hmm. and then she ended up. They, she and the producer uh, Michael Cole. Uh, that show got into deep water and trouble and and so that ended and then Phil came on board and he uh, one thing one reason Phil McKinley was so good to be the director of that is he used to in his early years direct the Barnum and Bailey circus at times what so, yeah he <laughs> did do that as a gig you know I mean and and but you but it served him so well because He's so great with timing and with tricks and with the safety of aerialists and with, mm -hmm. you might know in a circus, you know, you have to make sure, mm -hmm. you know, no one turns their back to the lion, as they say. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's yeah, like, they say that in Hollywood all day too, to your yeah, agent. Yeah. But, <laughs> but, but so he was really well suited for all that. Wow. How did you guys meet? Because you've been working with him for a long time, right? Well, we met on an ill-fated show called The Ten Commandments in, in, at the Play at the Kodak Theater. And I had the best time on that show. And unfortunately, it was not well received for many reasons. But I wrote a score with Patrick Leonard, who did mm. you know, a, a lot of Madonna's records. Mm -hmm. and, and we were very proud of our score. And, but this, this show just was something that should have been workshopped. And they had... They booked the venue before they started to do the show, rehearse the show. Oh. That was the craziness of that. And it really was a show that just opened too early. And it got kind of got chaotic. And But it was fun. I had great friendships. Val Kilmer was in it. Yeah. Yeah. And, he played uh, Moses, huh? <laughs> I mean, that alone can make us. Yeah. Like, well, that's kind of like tough. Rocking Jesus, yeah. you know. So, <laughs> yeah, wow. So it was crazy, but a lot of good, uh, actually good friends, and a lot of good business came out of it. And you know, Adam Lambert, who's who's mm -hmm. famous now. He, I remember the day he auditioned, and he came, and he was just one of the kids standing in line. And wow, when he sang for us, we we just what we were in shock. Wow. So, and Allie Porter, who won The Voice two years ago, was in it. She auditioned oh. for us. Wow. I'm so sorry I missed it. That, you know what? It sounds like it should have had a real long run. It should have had like a Broadway run, the Ten Commandments. I mean, maybe it was a little miscast with Val. I'm not really sure. but And, and premature to put it up on a stage. But it's a shame that it didn't have, um, you know, other legs. And Phil was directing that. Is that correct? No. He, Phil came in as a show doctor, they call it, oh. after the things started to like suffer. He came in and took over for the existing director who they fired. But I think Val, I mean, it's one big thing that it calls out too is the difference between a film actor and a stage actor. Mm -hmm. I mean, here's Hugh Jackman who does it all. But but the one problem is that Val was a good singer. If you put him in a studio and you put him on a mic and he was singing rock songs or something, like, you know, he could have sung The Doors, you know. He, yeah. He was great like that. But But to stand on a stage with these guys that had the chops – of, of Broadway kids, you know, like a guy named Kevin Early, mm -hmm. the most amazing, you know, the New York uh, Broadway theater kids and yeah. the LA kids. These are like triple threats. They can dance, they can sing, they can act. They're so crazy great, and, you know. And to put just a, a, a charismatic film actor, talented as he is, and I love Val, and he's mm -hmm. so talented in so many things. Heat, Tombstone, yeah. you know. 
the doors. He, I, I felt he should have won an Oscar for that. Yeah, I agree with you, especially for the doors. Especially for the doors. But, you know, it just was almost like trying to combine these two mediums. So it, it wasn't just thought out. I, it was really the producers who, who bore the sort of the responsibility for not stepping in. And because had they done that and straightened it out, Mm-hmm. And we had the score. We had a talented cast. It could have, it could have amounted to way more. It's a you know, shame. It could have turned out much better. Yeah, that was a shame. But that's how I met Phil McKinley, and and then I worked with him ever since. We wrote a two-hour. We wrote a new. Michael Cole was going to do a show called In the Beginning, mm-hmm. which is a takeoff on this thing of the Bible stories from the Old Testament, Moses oh. and Noah and all that, and you know Adam and Eve. So we wrote a 20 song score to that that still exists. I, I wow. you know, and it, I think it would be a wonderful idea, especially for faith and family audiences. Mm-hmm. You know, who doesn't want to take their kid and see giraffes coming down the aisles of an arena, the stick puppets and Noah's Ark, and, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, so that's still in kind of quasi development. We're looking for investors on that. Yeah. Well, that takes a long time, Barry Beth. Just, it does, uh, and we had them, takes and then years. at the last minute, they, something goes wrong, and yeah, you know. But but yeah, but I still am hoping it will happen. It's still the music I'm proudest of that I've written. I think. Hmm. Very nice. I and how involved are you in the deal making of that, Mary Beth? Or are you stuck on the creative side? Well, For you this know, particular my one husband. In- Oh, this one you mean? Yes, this particular my one. My late husband, you know, was the deal maker for me because he was a music publisher. And, mm-hmm. of course, he had attorneys that we would consult if there was anything. But but he, he completely understood what a contract said in the entertainment business. I mean, it was no mystery to him um, where the loophole was and where you had to watch out because this this meant this according to this royalty. And, you know, so he knew everything. But now I'm kind of on my own. But... I've learned one thing being in this business all these years, and that's just that uh, I, I know people disagree with this and say it's crazy, but I think the best allies I've ever had are attorneys mm-hmm. and a good attorney. You know, I, I, I am the first person to call an attorney mm-hmm. if there's any question. And, I, and I've, I've been lucky enough to have wonderful, wonderful counsel mm-hmm. and, and great help. And so... And that's what I do now. If I'm looking at a contract, I don't even, you know, I send it over yeah. to my attorney. That's what I do. I mean, I, I you know, reading them, I don't, we're not attorneys and we're on, on a different level. And reading them, I'm like, what the heck does this mean? So I just send it over and they kind of, yeah. you know, clarify it and speak to me in like, a, you know, street terms and tell me what it is. And then I just make a decision after that. But I'm fortunate to have the right attorneys around me. That's everything. Yeah, it is know, everything. Just, it's just safe and security with that. It's like, oh, okay, mm-hmm. I get it. No, let's not do that, or let's change this if we can. Yeah, and you build that trust over years. Mm-hmm. You know that. Uh, you know, you just know that they're looking out for you. So. Yeah, let me go back for one second on the show stoppers. Is that still playing at the Wynn Hotel? And was yeah. Steve Wynn involved? You know, you know, pretty involved or not? He was so involved, Marco. And to answer your first question, no, it's not playing now. Okay. They 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 closed that show down, hmm. and a lot of the cast went their separate ways now. Uh, Steve would come and and be at every you know a lot of rehearsals. Everything would run by him. Uh, he was he's incredibly invested, and I think because he loves 
to create art and create shows, he would just be as excited as all the rest of us and want to come and hear the new songs. When I brought new lyrics, you know, we would sing them. Hmm. We'd have the singers, you know, sing them. And he'd almost know every word that the lyrics said by hearing it once. Wow. You know, he'd say, I love that line. And I love this. And he was very invested in, in all of it. And Larev, especially mm-hmm. Larev, because, wow. uh, That's you surprising. know, he would be looking. I know. You wouldn't think it. You would never think it. And it's, it's, it's too bad it's not really noted or advertised, but that he's that invested in, in, his, uh, in, in the work that's at his hotel. Yeah, and he was such a creative force, Marco, Mm -hmm. behind the work. I mean, it was all to his taste level, of course. You know, and and he he defined the taste level for that anything that had anything to do with that hotel. I mean, if he said he wanted a song that was sexy, for example, well, then that definition had to meet his bar of what that was. It Hmm. wasn't lewd. It wasn't tacky. Nor was it Disney. You know, it. You just had to find his. You learn to know, mm-hmm. just like we buy our friends a, Chris, a present. We know what would this person like. Yes, you know, you work for these guys and you learn to know. Here's what they're gonna like. Hmm. That's very interesting. Which is really my job, you know, yeah. on things like that. But and that's what I do with composers. That's amazing, and and you've collaborated with a number of composers over the years, and again with different genres, you know, from theater people to. Uh, to pop, to country, to, you know, to TV. There's so many different people. Most people kind of like stick to one thing they do for 20 or 30 years, but you've mm-hmm. branched out and you have all these other composers, these pianists, these, you know, um, jazz musicians. It's, I'm reading through this thing and I'm like, how do you separate this from that? And how do you become equally as creative and equally as talented doing, for example, the Bible versus I can love you like that? I think because it just comes from the same place of learning that a lyricist is not just someone that sits and makes up poems and it's not prose. It's a very uh, honed craft that oftentimes comes uh, the best lyrics. I mean, someone that's up to doing it, like say a big project like Beauty and the Beast, Mm -hmm. like a Tim Rice or someone. It comes over years of honing a craft to, to composers for you're working with a composer meaning you have to give them a structure they prefer. They might, some composers want a verse that's going into a, what we call a bridge, which is a segment leading from one section of the song to the next. Huh. And then the chorus is always the hook, the payoff, you know, the big memorable lines. Yes. And, and you have to give them like you would give a builder. Uh, they're the contractor, you're kind of the architect. Hmm. And, and you give them what they need to compose that structure. Some, some composers want to give you the melody hmm. and that's okay too, unless it's a, it's a composer who's some of the cinematic, more cinematic, more orchestral composers. Uh, you have to have some structure with which to form a lyric. Hmm. You know, you have to have some sections of a song that repeat or that you can't just wander off into the ethers, you know, writing because otherwise you won't be able to establish a meter which is the most important thing, uh, very important in lyric writing, and a rhyme scheme. You a know, meter and a rhyme scheme. Hmm. You have to have that it, it, because it communicates. You know, in theater, they say uh, there was a reason the old guard, like the Jerry Hermans and people like that, well, you had to hard rhyme a lyric. Okay. Like if you said the word heart, 
you could not rhyme that word with star. You yes. had to rhyme it with start. Mm-hmm. It had to be what they call a hard rhyme. And that was an unbreakable old theatrical Broadway rule. But the reason behind it was, is that the ear of the listener, and you've got a big audience out there, will anticipate what you're going to say. So if you say the word, it was a lovely night in June, and there was also a full, they've already heard the word moon. Hmm. So you give them, uh, essentially by those rhymes, you give the human ear a way to anticipate and more quickly understand what you're saying, because the reason that some of the hybrid rock scores and things that they've always tried to make these things work Mm -hmm. is that sometimes those kind of songs are more cerebral and you have to really listen to what does this mean? Uh, What did they say? And when you've got headphones on and you're home listening, Mm -hmm. that's easy to do. But when you're sitting in a theater, it's just really important to let people know, here's what's going on. Mm -hmm. You know, here's what this person's saying. Yeah. And you can't, you know, you can't stop the action, then have a song, then start the action. And, you know, it's like Stephen Schwartz and Wicked. That's what was so brilliant is mm-hmm. it was one long story. Mm-hmm. And the songs came at the right moment and they told the story. So that's the craft of that. Wow. Of the writing and, and all. Wow, that that makes me reflect on when I saw Tommy on Broadway, because that flowed for me, and I, I and that's what I'm thinking of when you're talking about that. I mean, Wicked, of course, which I had also seen, but Tommy was really brought yeah. me into that. All the great ones do, yeah. you know, and that's why it's its own genre too, because yeah. it's it's really, and even if you get back to country music and pop, I think somewhat, but especially those two, country and and theater. It's really all based on a lot of communication. Mm-hmm. I mean, great songs are. I mean, look at the old standards. Yeah. I heard Somewhere of the Rainbow the other night, Eva Cassidy. We were listening to Joni Mitchell do both sides now. And it's all just about beautiful, something that moves people. Mm-hmm. And speaking of, way back then, you had done um, I Can Love You Like That. And I didn't know it was a country hit before it was a pop hit. I mean, I knew it as the pop hit, and I really loved that song, as did millions of others. And, you know, it was nominated for a Grammy Award. And But you wrote it as a country song. Yeah, well, we, we it came, the pop and the country version just came out almost right on top of each other. Oh. And and uh, we were in Nashville when I wrote it, and I, I took this lyric over to Steve Diamond, and uh, we came out with this this little work tape. And I took it home to Bo, my husband and publisher, and I said, Bo, maybe we have a hit. I said, listen to this work tape. And, you know, he was, of course, so jaded. And, but after, you know, he'd heard so many hundreds of songs. So after he heard, he said, Mary Beth, you, I, I think you do. He said, we should demo it right away. So we did. And he took it then over to Scott Hendricks, uh, who was a country producer, who had John Michael Montgomery. But at the same time, then uh, Steve Diamond's wife, who was his publisher, sent it out to uh, Los Angeles to a producer there. And mm-hmm. um, th- they placed it with the All for One group. But if you remember that song, I Swear, mm-hmm. had come only a year before, done the exact same thing. The exact same, John oh. Michael sang it, the exact same thing. Oh. So we said, wouldn't it be crazy if this song became like I swear? 
So we thought that was just such a miracle that this same thing happened, but the artists were not happy about it at all. Oh. You know, they, they were, uh, the producers and the artists were very angry and upset. They never wanted that to happen again. But hey, it was coming out and it started climbing the charts, so they stopped complaining. <laughs> they had like this giant hit song that was song of the year. And so, you know, it was a it great song. Could, it was a great pop song. I mean, it, it still is. It, it just one of those that fell right out of the sky on you. Wow. How did it feel you know? being at the Grammys for it? It felt amazing and, and shocking. And, and I really was one of those people who was just happy to be there. Yeah. You know, people say that. Yeah. Well, I really was that person because I couldn't believe I was sitting next to Seal. Oh. And, and uh, you know, but, you know, we were the underdog as far as winning. Mm -hmm. But we were nominated in four categories for best song country, best song, best pop group. But, you know, and, and that song changed my life. And, and, you know, it just takes one thing. That song really did change my life in many, many ways mm -hmm. because it really meant that I had the legitimacy to, to work, to not be someone on the outside of a business trying to get in. Mm -hmm. I, I could walk in a room with anyone, uh, big, uh, much more, you know, successful composers began calling me to work and it just was a, it was a, a good takeoff point for me. Wow. And how did it feel writing a couple of big hits for Lone Star? Not a Day Goes By and so forth. Well, they were, I was writing uh, with Tommy, with Tommy Lee James. And then one of those I wrote with Steve Diamond as well. But uh, I was in my kind of Nashville phase then. And mm -hmm. Lone Star was great. And Richie McDonald was the lead singer. And, and um, when we wrote, uh, I had another hit with him, them called Let's Be Us Again. Mm -hmm. And when we wrote that song, he came to the Barbara Orbison's building. She was Roy Orbison's widow, and mm -hmm. they had a great, great publishing room in Nashville. And these publishing door, you know, it's like rooms down the hallway are all open or closed, depending what writers are in there. So at the end of writing that song, we said to him, Richie, why don't you just sing it down for us? And it turned out that all those writing doors were open. And when he sang, mm. Marco, <laughs> everyone coming out, what's going on? What's going on? Who's here? <laughs> and he was just belting this thing out. And what a voice. But, you know, people were literally coming to, you know, drawn like a crowd to say, who's in here? And we said, it's Richie McDonald. And they said, my God. <laughs> you know, we, we didn't know what was happening. He's, he's really a, a terrific, ter they, they were all great guys. Great to work with. Wow. Was it after Pop in the Country? Is that when you got into the General Hospital and, and uh, TV soap opera themes? It was around the same time, Marco. But then I got my 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 dear friend who's since passed away was a producer at General Hospital mm -hmm. and and was working in daytime TV. And, you know, that's such a grind. And she was a producer. Then she directed some. But she was mainly, a you know, a producer. Mm -hmm. And uh, they needed songs for Ricky Martin. And for some other characters, you know, they always make a singer-songwriter in the daytime out of somebody, yeah. right? But this time, they, due to Wendy Rich, who was the executive producer at the time, she brought Ricky Martin in. Wow. So we were all smitten, you know, by, by Ricky. Of course. And uh, so they wanted original songs for Ricky Martin. And I was in luck because he didn't write lyrics in English. And so I came, let's say where I grew up, I came a-running. <laughs> and I got in there. I, I got in there and it was just, I think looking back, some of the most fun years 
of my life because I wasn't on the hard treadmill. They all were working, turning out five shows a week and stuff, but I would just come in as the songwriter. And I met my, one of my dearest friends, my whole life, Paul Antonelli, who was music supervisor there. Uh, He was one of the music people there. And, um, we just, we just, it was just a fun thing. You know, of course we all, it was fun to work with Ricky and his manager, Jose. Mm-hmm. And there were just funny stories from that crazy soap. I mean, more went on behind the camera than, than in front of the camera. But can you imagine all these crazy, you know, <laughs> divas and all the stuff that went on on this soap. And, and it, there was just always something to go around the corner and just double over laughing. So uh, wow. I had really fun years. So, but to write songs, how many songs did you write for Ricky Martin for the for the character? Right? Yeah, it was for the character who he played Miguel. I think was his character. <laughs> <laughs> and we what a cutie! Live, you know, at, at the same time, Antonio Sabato Jr. Did oh my know? God, that's two beautiful hunks. They were on there at the same time, and we used to just say, "Are these guys real or are they wax figures?" Yeah. I mean. They were so gorgeous. Perfect. Yeah. It's just oh. these sweet, beautiful young things too. They were oh. sweet as could be. Wow. So uh, they were on at the same time. Yeah. And Ricky was always so adorable and so sweet and so nice. And of course, hmm. you know, he would mess up the lyrics quite often because, <laughs> you know. Spanish was his first language, right? So he was yeah. struggling a bit with English. It was so sweet. And every time he would do a lyric wrong, he would come and kiss my hand and apologize. So I'd say, let him keep screwing these up. We don't even care what he sings anymore. <laughs> I wish I were there. I know. Oh my God, that is so funny. That's How long did that last for the Ricky Martin segment of it that I'm you were sure working on? Ricky was on like two, three years maybe. But, you know, he had this fabulous manager, Jose, and they would get off private jets from God only knows where they had been in yeah. the world. And, and you know, we would just, then we'd be saying, and they were always late. Sometimes they would be late, you know, and we'd say, oh, we're just so put out. They're late again. And the minute they would sweep in, we would all just melt they they were so well dressed and so cosmopolitan and and i mean they were just incredible wow my my tiny little story about general hospital was that uh when i used to work in a restaurant in sherman oaks um they hired me as a, a greek dancing cafe owner when they had this this greek <laughs> theme on the islands of general hospital and i got my aftercard from uh from performing as a Greek dancer on that. And I had some lines in Greek. So that was my little tiny thing. That was good. Yeah. They hired you in General Hospital? Yeah. Try two or three episodes. <laughs> I can't, I've never seen them, but uh, that was way back in the 80s, like mid 80s, mid to late 80s. It's funny. That's when they time. were at their peak, Marco, you know, yeah. and, and that's, and I've in fact written a musical that it's, I'm, I'm writing right now mm-hmm. with my friend Matt Rawlings and the name of the musical is Daytime. Uh, I was going to ask you, I was holding back on that, but I'm, go on because I want to ask you one song. Go on. Yeah, because it's it's really a compilation of a story, and it's the story of the worker bees of, of daytime soaps, not the stars, you know, but the behind-the-scenes people that kept the show running, the cameramen, the makeup artists, mm-hmm. the hairdressers, and and the, the you know, the people who worked there. And uh, they, they were in their glory days. 
And uh, it was quite a thing. And, and, but most of the people that really were behind the scenes in that show and keeping it running and keeping it going were people that, you know, lived in the Valley mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, not that you can't be rich and a star and live in the Valley, but I'm, um, you, you know, I'm just trying to, I'm saying, I'm talking about a sort of uh, the worker bees, I call them. Mm-hmm. And that's what this show is about and how a lot of people were hoping to pass through and hoping to go on to prime time. Yeah. And, you know, then I, I sort of do a takeoff on some of the, uh, like the, the executive producer, Wendy Rich, mm-hmm. and she was wonderful and who, who believed in me. And, and I loved working for Wendy. She's since gone on her husband. They do movies now. They did Tarzan. They've done several movies. So she's since gone on to do that. But um, yeah, it's, it's a musical about that era. Wow. I heard the song Daytime. I loved it. And, and you'd, <laughs> I think you'd mentioned Alec Baldwin in there. And again, a lot of those stars did live in the Valley back in the 80s. It was a big deal for a lot of TV actors. And hair and makeup wardrobe people lived in the Valley. That was kind of like where everybody was. Well, uh, that's what it says in the song, you yeah. know. <laughs> who, who wants to live in Bel Air with statues in your yard? <laughs> who wants to live in Malibu where everyone's a star? Because we love daytime. <laughs> and, but no, I, I deliberately put Alec Baldwin, Julianne Moore, yeah. Demi Moore, because, you know, those were the stars that came out of the soaps in those yes. days. Yeah, and they became so, superstars. Uh, yeah, and I wanted to set it in that that time, definitely that time yeah. era of the 80s, you know, because soaps, soaps were really peaking then. Mm-hmm. That song is great, and, and especially my new theme song, Beauty on the Outside. <laughs> <laughs> I listened to it several times. I made Kelly listen to it today. We were laughing. We love that song. So somehow I've got to incorporate it into my theme of life. So that's based on on, on, on someone real who will will remain nameless. Okay. (laughs) But, you know, the thing of the the soaps and the thing that can take place in that world, which is only natural, is that, you know, everybody wants to look good in the fear of aging. Mm -hmm. And yet, you know, they are aging. And yeah. so in all the soaps, there's some older cup family, you know, some family patriarch or matriarch or something. But this one actress in particular was was just hilariously uh, always trying to stay young and sexy mm-hmm. in what she wore. And she refused. I mean, she did not want to hear that, you know, age gracefully. You're beautiful the way you are. No. Yeah. It was like, <laughs> don't treat me like I'm a fool. <laughs> <laughs> I can't tell you how many times I did repeat on listening to that and repeat. It's just, I'm just, why is this not out yet? I'm thinking. And that's why I wanted to ask you, where is that in development? Well, right now we're looking for a book writer who could really pull off writing the book to it. And, okay. and I, I need to get back on it. We have about six or seven songs and one is more hilarious than the next. Okay. And, and uh, you know, we have a storyline, and it's based on the two girls. Uh, Kelly Scott is the lead, and that was my my friend who passed away. Mm-hmm. And how badly she wants to get out of daytime and marry a guy and move to Montana. That was her dream. Mm. And her sidekick only wants to be a star and be in daytime. <laughs> so anyway, their paths, their stars cross. Each one gets the other's dream kind of in the end. And... Um, but it's it's poignant, and especially since the soaps are kind of, you know, they're, I don't know if they'll hang on, how long they'll hang on, but hmm. um, it, it, where it is, to answer your question, is it's in development, and it needs a really good book writer. 
Mm, that's always hard to I find. I mean, we have we have the story, but we need we need the person. We're looking mm-hmm. for the person who can write the book in that language and in that from that place because it would be really nice to find a book writer who who could live who had lived it mm-hmm. as well, you know, because. If, if you had ever lived it, you got it. You understood yeah. who these people were, you know. Yeah, the book would flow. I mean, I, I've been struggling for a few years to find a book writer. I found one now. He's, he's a music journalist, but at least he's my age, and he understands the um, interception of music in life, generally speaking, and the times that we lived in so we can work around the stories. But you know, it's very hard. You have to find somebody who's lived through it to right. really put the structure together and uh, and add the political landscape of what was going on during that time. Yeah, you, you're right, Mark. You have to find somebody that's, who, who understands the times you were living in. Mm-hmm. Because if you don't have that, there's a, there's a disconnect. Yeah, that's what I found over the past. That's why I'm now doing what I'm doing because it took me a few years to get to that point. I needed that person that to structure around the stories that were relevant at the time and what was going on in the film business um, and in the city of, of Toronto <clears throat> and in the city of Los Angeles, which went through a bunch of transformations from the 80s to the 90s to the O's. And you have to understand that to see why you come and go as, you know, that, that breed of a, that wannabe actor for those times. Yeah. But good for you. You yeah. have to take your time, find the right person because then you only have one shot. Yeah, I know. That's for yeah. sure. It's uh, so we're still working on it. I've slowed down a little bit. I'm I'm really I've just been listening and started with you, like sending you things, and and we heard it again the other day, mm-hmm. and especially that song "Beauty on the Outside." I just all, love it. We just we heard it this morning. And and uh, said, "What we we've got to get back on this." I was singing it this morning with a top with a high vibrato. I was just I was <laughs> I went bananas listening to it. I just enjoyed it so much. And in the scene we created around that, Marco, you know, there's a musical interlude in the middle. It's like a tango kind mm-hmm. of feel. Yes. Then the cameraman comes and takes oh. out and he tangos with her, you know, <laughs> the guy behind the camera. So and she's a diva, you know. Uh, it's all about the camera. I, it's hysterical. Oh, it's a great yeah, song. A, I was like, well, uh, I want this. So now I'm going to use it as my theme. Um, well, <laughs> until should. it's published. Once it's published, then I can actually use it. But uh, it's it's in my unpublished theme, you know, thing, repertoire. Oh, my gosh. It's a lot of good fun. It's it's great that you've done that, you know, between more serious theater songwriting as well as uh, the biblical ones from the Ten Commandments yeah. to the Bible to this that in itself yeah. is a huge variety, Mary Beth, but it all comes from the same place. It's heart and soul. And that's what I kind of find as the common denominator and decency and fun within it. You've got to like look at it and laugh as well. Well, that's why I loved writing this comedy, Marco. And, you know, it, you'll never find more uh, comic situations, too, than in some of that that stuff in daytime. You know, the, the, the leading man who's who's getting edged out by the young you know, mm-hmm. the Ricky Martins and the Antonios. And and uh, as a way to deal with his character, he's very egotistical. They put, they have his character be in an accident and now he's in a coma. So, <laughs> so every day he checks onto the set and they hook him up to a hospital bed and wires. And then they have his wife standing over. When do you think he'll be coming out of the doctors? There's no telling. And so... In the in our show, as a point of humor, this is what they've done, you know, to shut him up. 
because he wants his contract. He wants different writers. Ah. He's not stand for this storyline. And now he's in a coma. So ah. we, we made the most of that laugh. That's hysterical. That's kind of like close to how I exited working for Nick Cage. I became such a diva. It's like, well, I want my first class airfare, my hotels, my SUV. You know, a regular sedan is not good enough. I don't blame you. They can afford it. It's like, yeah, but you're the, but you're the stand-in. I'm like, no, I said, you're making a mistake. I said, I'm the stand-in. There are three capitals in that word, the, yes. And you need to figure (laughs) that thing out. And they're like, but you make more than the production manager. I should. I'm on set yeah. with the superstar and you're just a paper pusher peddling. You got to stay with that too. <laughs> I, it was so funny. And that's what we're running about. The whole thing was hysterical. That lasted 10 years of just ridiculousness, you know, but it was the big cheese of Nick Cage, but he was very generous. He allowed me to play on my superficial way. So I had a good time. Yeah, with it. But you know, that is nice. I think they are generous. Yeah. I mean, I think that I was told my son, my son is a young filmmaker and, and, you know, he's gone through that level of, you know, these producers that approach and they can get money and then it all turns like into some deal that, you know, he's not sure what is going on and what's in it for him and all this. And I've always told him the higher you go in terms of people you work with, the more successful, the more professional, I think the easier it becomes and the more well-treated you are. Mm-hmm. You know, I, agree. I, I mean, it just, I think, comes with the territory that when it really does get to the level of the Nick Cage people and his companies and the, and the Win Entertainment Corporations and the ABCs and all, it, it becomes easier the way they treat you, not mm-hmm. harder. Yeah. I've found. Yeah. I have also found the same thing. And I think everybody I've, I've spoken to on that level has said the same thing because you've made it. You're up there. You can relax. You can let things go a little bit. You can say, hey... It's time to give back a little bit. You become a little more kinder because you're not grinding. You're already there. You're on the top of the hill. Yeah. And when you're a working pro, nobody expects to not pay you. Mm-hmm. I mean, they know they're paying you. Yes. You know? Yeah. It becomes a lot easier. I agree. It's uh, it, it was it was a struggle to get there. And it's like, oh, we're here. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. It just felt easy at that point. It gets so much easier. You don't have to prove yourself, Mary Beth. You're not reproving yourself all the time. They've they kind of get who you are and what you do. And that, you know, for yeah. Nick Cage and his people. It's like, yeah, that's how it is. Yeah. And they accept it. Yeah. I mean, that's the beauty of it. They're not shocked by it. Yeah. No, I, I love that part of you it. You want a private jet? They're not shocked. Yeah. <laughs> I can't even <laughs> the ask. Standing stand-ins. <laughs> my padded shoulders, my lips in my shoes, the nine down-filled pillows in hotels, the shampoos at the carpets before I showed up in the hotel room. I would test it with my finger to make sure it was still damp after cleaning. I mean, they thought I would call it in. <laughs> I was like, you would think I was like some crazy ass. I didn't want the duvet cover on there. I said, take it off. I want the sheets not so bleached. I said, the smell of bleach bothers me. I break out in a rash. I mean, I went on about the whole thing. It was, I can't believe they didn't throw me off, but I said, if you want me to perform well on stage as a stand-in, I need my comfort in the hotel. I need to rest properly. And you did need that. I'm all for it, dude. I did. And <laughs> I said, and they said, how do you feel? It was 5.30 in the morning while I'm on set. I said, great. I slept well. I said, I had my big fat comforter. I said, with my big fat Greek hairdo. 
And uh, I got to like lie down on those big pillows the way I ordered them. And they would look at me like I'm crazy. So I'm ready to roll. Let's shoot this scene. <laughs> it's like, yeah. but you're the stand-in. I said, yeah, so let's shoot it. <laughs> That's right. That's perfect. It was funny. I know, Marco. I relaxed too. I, 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 went, I went to about a couple, I don't know when this was, maybe a year, half, two years ago, but I, they, they called me from Nashville to go into a writing session with this young kid who was getting his first record deal and he was a co-write, you know, wanted, needed help with lyric. And so I go in and he comes in and he, I could tell he was a little nervous and I met, you know, mm -hmm. he says, look, you know, I'm going to tell you right out. He goes, I don't, I don't want to fight you on things. I want to say what I want to say. Like, I don't want to fight you. I said, fight me. I'm not here to fight you. I'm just sitting here right where you want. You know, it's, it's like I had no investment. You know, it was, it was interesting. And by the end of the two days, we, you know, we hit it off and we got along fine because, you know, I, I was totally relaxed. It really wasn't uh, life or death to me, whether, a hit song came out of it. It was more to, you yeah. know, I was there to help if I could, but if not, I was on my way to get a petty. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Is that funny how it all turns? Yeah. Yeah. There was like, I'm not the desperate one. So yeah. don't get it confused. Mary Beth, you had won two Emmy awards. One was for to go back to general hospital. Did you, what did you write on general hospital that got you the Emmy award? Uh, I, I'm going to be embarrassed myself now. It was a song that was for Wally Kurth. I'm trying to think of the title. I wrote it with Steve Diamond. And um, it was uh, something about our lives. I'm sorry. I honestly don't remember the title. I okay. was that horrible. <laughs> okay. But, but the, uh, it will come to me. But the Primetime Emmy Award, uh, I got a song. I got that for a thing called You Gotta Want It. And that was for that fame show. It was called Fame LA. They put mm -hmm. quite a lot of money and production value and everything into it. And uh, it didn't last long. But uh, but our theme won, won the Emmy. And I wrote that with Tom Snow, wow. uh, who's quite a quite an accomplished songwriter. Wow. And uh, so we won for that theme. And it was a great, I, I thought it was, you know, I, I thought we stood a good chance to win for the best primetime theme. And we did. And um, I think that I think that Emmy, the daytime one, was called "Still Wanting You." I'm mm -hmm. pretty sure that was the title, "Still Wanting You," and it was a song that Wally Kurth sang on General Hospital, okay. and written by Steve Diamond and I. Oh, okay, that was interesting. Well, everything gets submitted, you know. Yeah. So each year they got a chance to submit mm -hmm. what they what they wanted. Okay. And uh, you know they put their own songs from their own shows up for the Emmy, hmm. and then they vote and if you're one of the nominees that's next step and then you go to you, you know the awards and who wins and mm -hmm. so that year we won that's great i mean it was a good show for for as long as it lasted. that it wasn't the same didn't have the same feel as it did in new york in the 80s um but it still was good because it was you know shifted from new york to la and i you know it lasted what a couple of years it's a good theme song yeah yeah la is always a shift i mean I think things in New York have a different feel for sure, you mm -hmm. know, than they do in LA. Let me ask you, the feature films now, so you've done a few um, songs for, you've done one for The Wedding Planner, uh, The Rugrats in Paris, Wild Thornberries. How was that? No, well, on The Wedding Planner, I was working with Adam Anders at the time, and he since went on to do Glee. 
And so he's had a big uh, run on that show and all the residuals that come with it. And he Mm -hmm. did, uh, you know, he was in on making all those records when they released all the soundtracks from Glee. So Adam had first come to Los Angeles and met my husband and he was just a a sweet young kid. Mm -hmm. And uh, he ended up living at our house for several months till he could get established here, which we did that often, Bo and I. I mean, there was always someone staying with us. Mm-hmm. And um, so we started writing, and then his girlfriend uh, was Nikki Hassman, who had been the lead singer for Avalon, which was a Christian group. Mm-hmm. And so we would write songs, and she would sing these demos. And so Bo got a call that on the wedding planner they were looking for a song for that movie, and he sent it over, and next thing you know, we were in that movie. And then... Uh, I wrote this with them on the wild thornberries. We had known someone, uh, my f- dear friend, Georgia Cogney, uh, worked over there, uh, with a, with the creator of the, of the, of the Rugrats. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so we wrote this song called when you love, and that became the end title of that. And Sinead O'Connor recorded it and Wyclef John produced it. Wow. So, oh. so that was a, a nice film credit. And, uh, so we had that. And it just happened mainly, I mean, a lot of it, I have to say, happened through uh, Bo Goldson, my mm-hmm. publisher and late husband, uh, getting things placed for us. You know, that's the job of a publisher. Mm-hmm. And when you have a good publisher that can call people, you know, they'll, they'll get half the battles just getting your songs heard. Mm-hmm. You know, because, you know, if you want Barbara Streisand to hear a song, you've got to understand how to get that song to her people, to her Who's the key person to call? How do you do it? And a publisher uh, understands and has these relationships, mm-hmm. which is, you know, terrific. Yeah, it's like an entertainment lawyer who has his contacts and and deals yeah, with that they stuff. do too. You know, they're yeah. very valuable at that too. Mm-hmm. Are and you... the same with getting record deals. You know, uh, publishers get lots of people record deals. Hmm. That's very interesting. I mean, they were the ones responsible. You know. Wow. Yeah. And are you doing more film scores now, or is it just kind of like here and there on that? You're not really concentrating on that. You're much more in the musical theater as opportunities arise. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not, film scores, I mean, I'm not plugged into that world, Marco, too much. But what I really am focused on and what I love to do is theater. And, and I, one of the reasons I love it is because it gives you something to say mm-hmm. when you sit down and write. You're not sitting like in some dreamy state going, Let's write a love song. Yeah. You know, I think my years of that are like over. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, it's just too, too esoteric. I, yeah. I like to write given the assignment of here's a guy who's a stranger in wherever and he meets a girl walking on the beach. I can then have a, an approach and, a, and an angle. Mm-hmm. And, and I love the craft of theatrical writing. I love the skill set that it takes. Because it is challenging, and and I love to have to hard rhyme and to have to, I, I like to challenge myself as a lyricist. I don't want to write, you know, soft gobbledygook. I want to write something that that can show that mm-hmm. I've spent my adult life honing this particular craft. I'm proud when I do it well. Yeah, you know, much more so than I would be of a pop song that I did, you know. It's it, to me, it's the craft level. Yeah, that I'm, I'm, that challenges me now, makes me want to work. Well, and it shows. I mean, I love the stuff that I have already here. I've listened to everything. 
But uh, I, I, you know, especially the new thing, daytime, so just because it's so full of humor. I can't wait until <laughs> you guys finish up and do more and hopefully it becomes what it's supposed to become. Um, Mary Beth, you segued into being a children's book author as well. The Adventures of Lily Stargazer. I've always wanted to write that book, Marco. And I, you know, I grew up as a little girl in the country of Pennsylvania. Hmm. And, you know, I was always fascinated by the childhood of, of rural kids. You know, a lot of kids now grow up in an urban world. Mm-hmm. But there are plenty of kids that still exist, you know, are out there that grow up in rural communities. And I, I grew up in a very rural community. So, you know, we did go out at night and catch lightning bugs in a jar. And we did, uh, you know, you know, I remember I grew up in a time when our parents said, be home when the streetlights come on. Can yeah. you imagine <laughs> saying that to a kid growing up in L.A.? <laughs> but this was just a fantasy I had of this little character who had a communal tie with nature and who felt that she talked to trees and that she understood things that were going on around her in the natural world and believed that that world was real. Hmm. So I created this character of Lily Stargazer. And then I met a wonderful illustrationist, uh, uh, Jeannie Winston, a wonderful illustrator. And together, Jeannie and I, you know, it's funny when you create a character like that and then you work with the illustrator you can't just have someone just draw it. You've got to find her hmm. to where the actual character emerges. Hmm. And you go, that's it. That's her. Look, there she is. And so I'm sure everyone who's a great animator at Disney and ever did the lion, you know, that's what these guys do. They make us see Simba. They mm-hmm. make us see, oh, that's him. And, and so that was really a fun project. And she worked with me. Hmm. And now uh, she moved to Los Angeles and we're doing another book. Oh, nice. We're going at another Lily Stargazer book that's a Christmas book. Hmm. And, um, but that was the most rewarding thing because, and then we wrote songs that go with that, that if we, when we sell the book, you can have the, the songs. There's three children's songs. Oh, how cute. That book is available on Amazon and, and, uh, it's just the most fun, magical little thing because I, you know, my hopes were not high. Uh, I just wanted to do it for the sheer love of it. And hmm. I just love, I loved what Jeannie did and she brought my, my little character to life. How nice is that? Mm-hmm. Nice. It was fun. It was fun. That's cool. And, and, and well, I haven't got it yet, but I'm going to buy it now. I need to pick it up for like Christmas gifts. Well, you can always have a freebie from me. I'll send yeah. you one. <laughs> I know. Yeah, it's a kid, it's a kids book, Marco, but it's it's the genre of kids books that a grandparent or a parent would read to the child mm-hmm. because the reading level is probably about a, maybe I'd say seven or eight, and yet the little character is probably about four or five. Oh. But it was designed with that in mind that this is a book you're going to read to a child. Okay. This isn't a book that you pick up and the first page says "womp." Whap. Yeah. So the child can go, know those words. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's not, it's not like that. It's a story. Mm-hmm. It's a fairy tale that really is read to a child. A bedtime story. Yeah. And that gets involved in a whole marketing thing. Yeah. That's cute. I like that. Uh, I'm going to ask one fun, fluffy last question, Mary Beth. And I'm dying to hear the answer because I really don't know the answer. First of all, you went to school to, at Carnegie uh, Mellon in uh, in Pittsburgh. Well, I did undergraduate West Virginia, and then I enrolled in Carnegie Mellon for a graduate for a master's in oh, theater. Okay. 
Okay, but when you were in West Virginia, you entered a pageant, Miss America pageant. <laughs> I just have to ask you that. Yes. You entered it as Miss West Virginia. Is that correct? Right. Well, I went to school in West Virginia, and I was in a sorority. And, of course, then there's the Miss West Virginia University pageant, and each sorority puts a girl in. Uh-huh. But in the old days of Miss America, and this, these were the days when Burt Parks was still there. Wow. And it was just beginning in those years to become uncool. I mean, this was just the beginning of, you know, you know, before that, wow, Miss America, that was something. So because I could sing and dance, mm-hmm. the DG sorority put me up to go in this local pageant because I could, I yet have a talent competition. So I went in it and I won. So the next thing you know, I'm headed, of course, I, I wasn't the exact, you know, perfect role model to be this spokesman, you know, let's just say I did my share of partying and running around. And, but the next thing I was headed to the state pageant uh, in Parkersburg, West Virginia, where they picked the Miss West Virginia, who's now going to go to the Miss America pageant. So lo and behold, I win that. (laughs) So now... That's phenomenal. So I'm driving around with my ratty looking friends in a car that says Miss West Virginia on the side. <laughs> like just married. I'm going through Burger King. <laughs> no, well, they gave me this car. You got a free car for a year, and it had these big seals on each door Miss West Virginia. So, you know, I'd be have that car packed full of girlfriends and, and you know, and me in there and. And I mean, we'd be going through through a Wendy's with this carload of screaming girls and, and this car that said Miss West Virginia. So one time I let my hippie boyfriend drive it and we, we were going somewhere in West Virginia and the roads were bad and he spun out and we landed in a ditch. Uh-huh. And I mean, I had old jeans on and a flannel shirt. and I mean, he, he was like a long haired hippie guy. And when the tow truck came, <laughs> they're pulling this. Miss West Virginia car <laughs> out of the ditch. And they're, they're like asking me, how did you get this car? <laughs> I'm saying, listen, this is me. And they're looking like, yeah, right. I'm saying, <laughs> I can just imagine <laughs> with a Wendy's burger coming out of your mouth. Yeah, it was a scandal, <laughs> you know. But, but anyway, I, I ran around, the, I took off school the following year and I went all over the state wow. doing official appearances and you know, I, I, in those days I was, I sang. So you're so like a I Bobby was, Gentry type. No, not really. I was more <laughs> no. like a, I was, I think it was more of a theatrical singer. Okay. You know, I'd say things from the fantastic, soon it's going to rain. I can feel it. The fantastic stuff and all that. Oh, okay. I was very much like the ingenue in that role, you know? Oh, okay. In the Miss West Virginia thing. No, I had to be like, you know, I was the, the good girl. <laughs> How cool was that? And how far did you, I'm just curious, how far did you get? So here you are, Miss West Virginia. You've got the whole USA pageant and there you are. I mean, what were your parents thinking this entire time? They're like, how did this all happen? They were very proud, Marco. And, and it was an honor. I mean, I don't mm-hmm. need to put it down at all because it was really an honor, quite an honor to be selected. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it really, uh, the other thing is, I think, you know, is that I could do it because it is a performance. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to be able to to do something. You yeah. have to be able to public do public speaking. You have to be able to show up and be in a long. I mean, for me, uh, looking back uh, now at my age, I think it's a wonderful thing for a young girl to just even have to wear an evening gown. Mm-hmm. I had to appear places in 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 ball gowns, and 
And I look back and think, what a, what a nice thing that was mm-hmm. to be young like that and to have had that experience. Lots of young girls, after their prom dress, they never even have that chance. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there was something very girly about it in a way that people sort of began to reject. But there was something really lovely about that. And I learned a lot of things. I was, you know, pampered and groomed and had these things and had a lot of privilege and was flown around everywhere and driven places. And my job was to arrive there and speak and meet people. And then a lot of times I would sing. Mm-hmm. And that was my talent in the pageant. So I would sing. And, you know, then it would be pack the car and go on to the next thing. But in those small towns in West Virginia and Pennsylvania and all, I'd receive these overwhelmingly warm welcomes. I mean, you would think, you know, I don't know who had arrived. I mean, they were they were so sweet and welcoming. And and you find out they were very proud mm-hmm. of their, of, you know, it was a simpler time. It was. I remember those times. I mean, we're not that far apart in age. And I used to watch those all the time. The Miss America, yeah. the Miss Universe. I loved watching it. It felt innocent. And and you saw the beauties, but you also saw how much talent and how smart these women were. These were not just like little doorknobby chicks. These girls were educated. They were They were sweet. They were smart. They took everything in stride. And they were young, like 18, 20 years old. Yeah. And they had all that on their shoulders. So I don't know. I always saw them better than me. That's what I'm trying to say, Marco. You had, no, you're saying it perfectly. You had to step up to a certain level Mm -hmm. and, and you were, and it was pretty young girls to be doing it. How far did you get in the Miss USA pageant? that year? I didn't, I wasn't one of the top 10, but I did win the talent competition. Oh, wow. So. So I won that, and I was very proud about that, but I didn't get in the top 10 that night. So that okay. was very disappointing. And, you know, all the girls that aren't selected, that's that's a bummer because, yeah. you know, you're looking forward, you've primed for that. And, um, you know, I wasn't selected. There were a lot of reasons, I think, back then that, you know, there was a lot of criteria uh, mm-hmm. that you had to meet. And um, I was small. I wasn't very tall. I was 5'5", five, five, but, you know, a lot of those girls were really tall. Mm-hmm. And um, just who knows why. Yeah. But anyway, that was a disappointing thing. But I was happy that I won the talent. That was the biggest thing because that's where you ended up excelling in life. Yeah. And so to have won the, the yeah. most talented contestant was the thing to do. I won that in a state pageant too. You know, that I, mm. I would always come away with these kind of awards, you know. Wow. But um, that's great. Anyway, it paid off. I'm not I'm not uh, sorry I did it shortly after that. Yeah. You know, it became very unpopular. You know, women would be burning their bras in front of the Atlantic City thing. And, you know, it became something I was sort of ashamed to tell people for years in in California. When I moved here, I never put it on a resume or bio ever, Hmm. you know, which was kind of dumb, I think, looking back. But Yeah, I think it was rich in its time, and I still think to a certain degree it is. I enjoyed watching all those pageants, Mary Beth. I'm so glad that you did it, and I think it should be on your resume. It's not on this resume. Well, now it's three but, years, years yeah. later, I'll put it on my resume. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, something very few people know, you know, yeah. I, I've never advertised it at all. Yeah, I just I wanted to end it off on that reminiscent note of uh, the beauty and the talent that you had. If you didn't win the talent contest and you did become Miss America, maybe your life would have shifted differently. Who knows? But the fact is that you beat out all those other contestants in talent. And that brought you to Los Angeles. 
Yeah, it actually did. And it brought me to Pittsburgh to a TV talk show that I had in the air there. And then I mm-hmm. left there and came to Los Angeles. Wow. Oh, so I drove much. across the country in a Honda Civic. No. <laughs> across the <laughs> desert in Arizona with my suitcase on the roof. <laughs> then I'd run up to everyone and then go, hi, I'm new here. And they'd go, uh-huh. <laughs> and that's obvious. Like, go back home. <laughs> LA people can be so. <laughs> They're so <laughs> jaded. Yeah, it's it like, is oh, so no, jaded and one. jappy. <laughs> it's like, yeah. that's so funny. The Honda Civic. Jesus. Yeah, a that's... brown Honda Civic. I drove across the desert. Uh, wow, that's pretty ballsy. By yourself? <laughs> no, my first husband is with me. Oh, okay. Okay, well, yeah. at least, okay. Okay. But, you know, we, I should say, we drove across the desert. Okay. And we didn't have any, you know, we, we were just on, you would have thought we had the world at our fat, uh, feet. We didn't have, uh, you know, anything to our name. Yeah. We were driving in this Honda, but we were on top of the world. Yeah. Never, you know, laughing. That's the beauty of youth, right? Yeah. I tell my tech kids that all the time. I say, you can't buy youth. You can buy surgery. You can get new lips, new eyes, new hairdos. You can't buy those years back. And you can't buy that innocence and that that freedom of fun of thinking, no, no mortgage, no property taxes, no roof repairs. We didn't know what a mortgage was. Yeah. I remember someone saying that once and go, what is that? <laughs> <laughs> You can't buy we, youth. It's impossible. You can't buy youth. Even on that trip, I remember my, my then husband saying to me, we're, we're low on gas. And I, I was like, oh my God, we're <laughs> sleeping in the painted desert. It'll be crazy. It'll be, you know. <laughs> I mean, but I would give anything for one day like that. Well, I can still have those days in, in spurts now and then when I laugh yeah. and carry on. But I'm never, I'm not, I'm not going to be as carefree ever as I was at 21. That's for sure. Yeah. None of us are or, or will ever will be. But we're still doing good, Mary Beth. We're fine. We're older people, but we have a lot of wisdom and we are, you know, secure within ourselves now, not back then. And, uh, and in, in our lifestyles, it's a stable lifestyle now. And we've kind of arrived, we've made it, we've done things and, and we're still here and we're healthy and we're That's still- That's the beauty of it. You know, Marco, and, and not to be a, a down note, but I mean, you know, so many people in their prime that I've known, young people in their 50s, my husband was 67 when he was diagnosed with, with uh, terminal cancer. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, nobody thought they were leaving the party. Nobody thought, you know, anything was going to change. And then these these things happen. So we're so fortunate to have our health. And that's why we get up every morning. We're happy. And it's a real statement. I get up every single morning. I have my coffee pre-done and I'm good. I'm happy. I can walk (laughs) up and down four flights of stairs. It's like I walk up and down these stairs all day. I feel good. I'm glad you do, too. I know. I do, too. I feel great. Good. And you look beyond great you look phenomenal i'm trying dude yeah. i'm not gonna lie to you yeah well i'm like puffing and fluffing trying yeah. to get it up, keep it keep it off from falling apart <laughs> <laughs> i'm gonna leave it at that and so mary beth i want to thank you so much for being on uh Babel bs and beyond and that's oh, the legal term it. thank you so much i really I appreciate it. it i love you and appreciate you and um thanks for having me Oh, my God. Thanks for showing up. We'll, uh, we'll speak soon. Thank you so much, honey. Okay, honey. Okay. Thank you so much. Thanks. Bye-bye. That concludes today's podcast with the beautiful and talented Mary Beth Derry. As always, thank you for listening. And until next time, this is Marco Kira signing off.
I can love you like that.